Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, and a message that I've entitled, Summoned and Sent by Jesus. And after I printed that title, I realized I really should have called it Summoned, Made, and Sent by Jesus. So if you got a pen there and you got your bulletin, you can just insert that. Summoned, Made, and Sent by Jesus. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. I hope that you found your way there. Would you join me in reading the Word of God? And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray that in these brief verses that we would find ourselves this morning, and that you would help us to understand the connective tissues between the calling out of the twelve and the calling out of your church. Lord, that we would see the purposes for which you commissioned your apostles are the purposes for which you commission us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in these verses, Jesus goes up on a mountain to choose his team. They're called simply the twelve. His apostles, as we Learn they are called in other places, and some versions have that he named them his apostles even within this text, although in the New American Standard that we read, it it does not include that that little section of verses. But the twelve are the apostles of Jesus, those personally called by Christ to proclaim the gospel and prove that the kingdom of God is coming on earth as it is in heaven. How? By healing the sick and overcoming demonic opposition and preaching the gospel. There will never be another group quite like the twelve. A group of men who walk and learn together with Jesus from the time of His baptism all the way through the time of His resurrection. As Aiken writes, these would be tasked with leading the early church and proclaiming the gospel among the nations. We learn in Luke chapter 6 that Jesus prayed all night before He called them. Clearly Jesus saw this as a crucial decision in His ministry and in the building of his kingdom. When the apostles pick a replacement for Judas, Peter tells us the criteria for the replacement must be that they have been a physical witness to the life and ministry of Jesus from the time of his baptism through to the time of his resurrection. Paul later is also called an apostle to the Gentiles based upon his dramatic conversion and seeing the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, but he had to be accepted as an apostle by the twelve apostles. And here's the reason we need to know this. There are no more big A apostles. Okay? There are none of us who, who have the authority of a Peter or a Paul to write Scripture and record it. The church is not built, as some believe, on a chain of succession of apostles. Well, I learned from Paul and You learn from Peter, and so that makes me an apostle all the way down to today. It's not built on a chain of succession of apostles. 
Rather, the church is built upon a chain of submission to the apostolic word of God. Apostolic authority is not found in a man. It's found in the word of God, which holds the teachings of the apostles. This is critical. This is why the church was continually devoting themselves not to the apostles, but to the apostles' teaching, Acts 2.42. To the apostolic understanding of who Jesus is and what He accomplished in light of the Old Testament, which promised Him. There's an old saying in construction, measure twice, cut once. What we measure, what we do against is not what Daniel Palmer thinks, not what somebody who calls them an apostle thinks. We measure against the once for all delivered word of God. And we measure twice and then we cut clean. Our sure hope for life in Christ comes not from a faith that shifts with the latest inspiring thoughts from an uninspired pastor. But it comes from the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude 3. So what does this passage have to do with us then? You just told me, Daniel, I'm not a big A apostle, so why don't we just move right along? Although none of us is a big A apostle, the apostles are, as Edwards writes, the church in embryonic form. The way that Jesus calls and forms the twelve and the purposes for which He has called them are the same for the church. We are founded upon the story of Jesus as recorded by His apostles. And Jesus is using that same story to call people to Himself. So for us to be the church in the world, we must have an apostolic understanding of our identity and purpose. We've got to see the church in the same way that we see the apostles. Like the first apostles, Jesus has summoned us to be sent into the world. So, if we're going to be the church of Christ in the world, there's three things that I believe we see in this text. First, we must understand that we've been called and made new by Christ. Secondly, we must fulfill the purposes for which He has made us. And finally, we must be faithful to the King who called us. First, we must understand that we have been called and made new by Christ. In verses 13 and 14, do you notice that Jesus is the primary actor in the text? He's the one who goes up the mountain. He's the one who summons those that He wants. And He is the one who appoints the twelve. All that the disciples do is what? Come. He calls, they come. Everything else is the activity of Jesus. May we be a church that is characterized by the activity of Jesus. That it is what Jesus is doing in our lives. That He is summoning us and He is commissioning us and He is sending us and calling us. It's not about what we are doing, but it's about what He is compelling us to do and to respond to. We know this is a major moment in the text because it happens on a mountain. Edwards writes this, Mountains are often in, Mark's sites of, often in Mark sites of revelation or significant junctures in Jesus' ministry. In Mark 9-2, Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. In Mark 13-3, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked Jesus about the last days on top of the Mount of Olives. In Mark 14-26, after the Last Supper, the disciples and Jesus go out to the Mount of Olives where Jesus gives them instructions on what they should do after His resurrection. And Edwards notes, Jesus' ascent to the mountain to call the twelve has the significance of Moses' ascent up Mount Sinai 
to receive and transmit the Ten Commandments. When Moses went up Mount Sinai to meet with God, he went alone and he brought down the revelation of God. But when Jesus goes up the mountain, He invites the twelve to join Him. Jesus is making a new people who won't have to have the revelation just come down. He invites them to come up and for us to have direct communion with God Himself. It's no accident, by the way, that there are twelve disciples. Where did twelve come from? The number recalls the twelve tribes of Israel. As Edwards writes, This signifies a reconstituting of Israel. Although the tribes of Israel had been scattered among the nations for centuries, God had preserved the line of Judah and given us Jesus. And now the lion of the tribe of Judah is calling out his team who will tell the story of God that will be used to populate the Son's kingdom with people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation to the ends of the earth. Israel won't just be Descendants of Abraham, it'll be descendants of Adam from every single people group on the planet. And he brings 12 apostles together to reconstitute what God is doing in the world. By showing us how the disciples are called, Mark wants us to see that the church is entirely dependent upon the work of Jesus to make us His own. Jesus summons or issues the invitation for us to join Him. And then it tells us that He wanted them. It's fascinating to me. He summoned the ones that He wanted. By the way, it's not that we first desired Jesus, but that Jesus first desired us. And it is not that He desired us because of what we had to offer Him, but because of what He could make of us. If Jesus was looking for what these men could offer, then surely He would have called some of the educated priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. But to the best of our knowledge, He didn't call any of them. Instead, He called Galilean fishermen and loudmouths and tax collectors. You see, discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Christ. It consists in what Christ can make of His disciples. This is why we read in verse 14, He appointed twelve. The word appointed there is actually the word for made. He made twelve. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 1-1 when Moses writes, In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Do you understand the significance of this? God is not just calling a bunch of people to be who they were. He is calling them to make them something entirely different. When He calls you into the church, it's not that you go be who you were six days a week and then I attend church on Sunday. When you come to Christ, He's making you into an entirely new thing. To be the church is to be called by Jesus and to be made by Him. From the fall of Adam and Eve forward, the whole world has needed a do-over. It's needed a new start. Go to any gas station, any grocery store, any place in the world... Do you need a do-over? Are there things in your life that you wish you could hit the reset button on? Yes, I do. The only place in the world that you can hit the reset button is in the church of God. The twelve aren't just a bunch of guys from Galilee. They are Jesus' first act in bringing about His new creation. We, like the apostles, are a community of those that God has summoned, He has wanted, and He has made into His people. That is the church of God. But why has He done it? 
Why did God do this? He, he did it for a reason. Actually, two reasons. The two primary reasons that God calls and makes the twelve are the purposes that we must fulfill. We've got to fulfill the purposes for which He made us. He tells us that He made us so that they would keep on being with Him, the grammar tells us. And secondly, so that He could keep on sending them. You see, Jesus has graciously called us to Himself and made us to be His own, to be with Him. Do you see that in the text? To be with Him. We've been made to be with Jesus. Edwards writes, this phrase has atomic significance. Discipleship is a relationship before it is a task. It is a who before it is a what. When Jesus makes us new through the transforming, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, He gives us the capacity to be constantly aware of His presence. He convicts us of sin in our lives and He leads us to repent and move forward in His mission always as the community of those who get to be with Jesus. Jesus made us His own so that we would be with Him. Jesus has made us not only to be with Him, but to live as those who have been sent by Him. In John 20, 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Did you know that being with Jesus and being sent by Jesus are not exclusive ideas? If you want to know the presence of Christ in your life, if you want to be with Jesus, then just go somewhere unfamiliar for Him. Go somewhere uncomfortable for Him. Sign up for the next mission trip to Puerto Rico or maybe even farther away than that. And if you aren't physically able to board a plane and go somewhere that's unfamiliar or uncomfortable with a different language, then just wake up and belong to Jesus because the longer you are with Jesus, the weirder you become in a world that does not know Him. Do you feel increasingly weird in this world? I was sitting at Starbucks this week working on my sermon. And sometimes people walk into Starbucks and they just have that voice that you can't not hear. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're there, all you're, you're cranking it out, you're working... You know, you don't hear anything, you're in the zone, and then that guy walks in, and he's sitting in the table, and he's, his voice is at that perfect pitch that's going right in your ear, and all you can hear is what he's saying, and you don't want to hear it. And you especially don't want to hear it, because when he, what he's saying is so contrary to the values of the gospel in Christ that you're like, I don't even know what world this is anymore. And yet, God is sending us into that world with the message and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So whether God sends you into unreached territory or calls you to stay right here in the Roanoke Valley, every Christian that exists is called to live sent. And Jesus sends the church for two reasons. So there's two big reasons, right? He calls us to be with Him and to be sent. And then under to be sent, there's point A and point B. You tracking with me? He makes us His own. He summons us. He desires us. He makes us. Why? To be with Him and to be sent. And then under to be sent, we got A and B. A is to preach. The mission of God in the world through the church is to preach the Gospel. 
The word here means to announce like a herald. And while we are not all called to go to Starbucks and prepare and preach sermons, we are all called to be a part of the effort and the community that seeks to get the preaching of the gospel to those who need to know our King. As someone recently asked me, why is the church so big on preaching? Aren't there other things, other methods, other ways? And to be sure, there are. But why preaching week after week, Sunday after Sunday? Well, several reasons. First, preaching is what Jesus did. I suppose that He could have sent a choir of angels. He could have drawn a cross in the sky. He could have produced a big box Christian movie and made a bunch of prophets. He could have started a blog or facilitated a focus group or a coffee or a brainstorming session, but he did not do any of those things. No, as Mark tells us in chapter 1, he came into Galilee doing what? Preaching the gospel of God. And then he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus communicates the gospel through one of the most mundane methods possible, a lecture, Because He wants us to be compelled by the message itself, not by the medium through which the message comes. And He uses clay. He uses dumb old pastors because He wants the message to come through real life, flesh and blood people living in your context, proving that the message works for people just like you. This is why we ought not watch our preaching primarily over a video screen. It's why God prizes the placing of a pastor with His people week in and week out. Because that's what God Himself did. He came down and put Himself among the crowds to preach the Gospel. He didn't record Himself on video in heaven and then distribute it to the people. He came down in flesh and blood and preached the Word of God. And it's not really a sermon unless you've got a man of God anointed by the Spirit of God with the people of God declaring the Word of God. If you lack any one of those elements, you might be watching a copy of a sermon, but you're not participating in a sermon. Second, as this passage shows us, are y'all, is this on? Second, as this passage shows us, preaching the gospel is one of the primary reasons that Jesus made the church. We are saved to be sent and to see to it that the gospel is preached. We preach the gospel because Jesus says this is one of the reasons the church exists. And if Jesus made us and He told us this is what you're supposed to do, then no matter what method the world tells us is better, we stick with God's program. He made us to get the gospel preached to the ends of the earth. This is why God commands us to preach pastors to preach the word in season and out of season, to reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, and I would argue is now here, when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the the truth, and what will they do? They will wander off into myths. We keep preaching the gospel because the world has plenty of myths to offer. Finally, Or a third reason that God commands us to preach the gospel is the gospel is truth. It is God's truth. The gospel does not need to be, it doesn't need to have our agreement or our approval in order for it to be truth. The gospel is the true story of the life and work of Jesus for His people. And it has been given to us 
to proclaim like heralds announcing that our King has come. We preach the Gospel because the proclamation of the Gospel is the means by which Jesus continues His work of making people His own and then sending them back out to do His work. As Edwards writes, proclamation is not the verbalizing of the subjective experience of the believer, but it is the making known of the saving activity of God in Jesus. It is not what disciples think and feel, but what they have seen and heard that is the subject of their proclamation. Hence, one does not just proclaim the gospel in his own words by his own powers, rather one must be sent by Jesus. Christ has made us His church and He has commissioned us to preach the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. And He gives us the message which is the power of God. And then He also gives us, do you see this in verse 15? The authority. He's commissioned us to have authority even to cast out demons. To prove the power of God over the forces of darkness. As Edwards writes, disciples are not simply defined by what they stand for but they are also defined by what they stand against. Uh, if you've been around Baptist life long enough, I've heard people say, well, you know, Southern Baptists, they, the whole, all the world knows is what we're against. They need to know what we're for. And, and I would say that, that's right. We're for a lot of good things. We're for marriages being saved. And we're for marriages going the distance. And we're for children getting the gospel. And we're for... Uh, poverty being eradicated to the extent that that's possible. And we're for economic progress and development. There's a lot of things that we are for, but there's some things that we're against too. We are against the forces of darkness. We are against demonic opposition. We are against people's lives being wrecked by Satan and by sin and by selfishness. We are against those things. And, and if we don't tell the world what we're against, if we never get around to being against something, then we don't actually have the gospel. Because the gospel was sent... To be against the forces of darkness and for the people that God is calling out to make His own. Jesus gives His church the authority to prove the power of the gospel that we proclaim. You see, we aren't just another community with another story. We have the story that brings the power of God into enemy territory. This is why the apostles have the authority to cast out demons as the gospel goes to new places to authenticate the message. To this day, in those places where the gospel is little known and very few people know Jesus, missionaries are often confronted with demonic opposition. And they cast out demons in Jesus' name. And what is important to remember is that Jesus has not given His church the authority over the forces of darkness to dwell upon the demonic or to be mesmerized by the miraculous. Instead, He has given us this authority in order to authenticate the message and prove the power and the presence of the Christ to whom it points. So our responsibility is what as a church? What do we do? What do we do with this gospel that we've received? We prove it. We prove it by not being afraid of whatever Satan could throw at us. We prove it by living out the lives that the Holy Spirit has built into us and we confidently wage war against the enemy through prayer and fasting and continuing to preach the gospel in Jesus' name. And finally, I believe this text shows us that we must be faithful to the King who has called us. In verses 16-19, through 19, Jesus makes the twelve and He even gives some of them a name. He gives Simon the name Peter. 
which means rock. Not because he immediately has a rock-like character, but because his, he has a fundamental role in leading the apostles. By the way, he also has the confession in Mark 8.29, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And his confession that comes later in Mark will be the foundation or the rock upon which the church is built. Jesus nicknames John and James, Zebedee's sons, the sons of thunder, or the loud ones, or even the hot-tempered pair. Aren't you glad that God can use a bunch of hotheads? That encourages me. He can use a loudmouth. Glory to God. But you know, most of the names in this list are pretty obscure. After we read their names, we don't read much more about them. And some of them don't have anything in common at all. For example, Jesus puts Matthew and Simon the Zealot on the same team. Before they are put on Jesus' team, Matthew is collecting taxes for Rome, and Simon is a Jewish zealot who is willing even to use violence against Rome. You can't get any farther apart than Matthew and Simon the Zealot. And as Achan writes, the only thing they have in common was that Jesus called them out, committed them to Himself, and used them to change the world. There are people who hate our country that God would call up into discipleship and use to change the world right alongside of you. And when Jesus knows and calls you by name, there's no need to make a name for yourself. You see, whether you're Peter or just a lowly Bartholomew, Christ has still called you to be with Him and to be sent out for the sake of His name. But sadly, Judas missed the memo. Writing 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Mark could have left Judas out of the list of names. But there it stands, at the end of the list, Judas. There are four lists of disciples in the New Testament. Every single one of them includes Judas, and Judas is always listed last. In every list, his betrayal is noted. Judas threw away Jesus and his friends for 30 pieces of silver. Why does Mark even put him in there? He could have left him out. Why? The name Judas stands at the end of every list of disciples like a giant warning light at the end of a dead-end street that terminates at the end of a cliff that goes over the ledge into the edge of the Pacific Ocean. Judas stands at the end of a list like a light flashing. Don't go here. Don't enter the community of Christ's disciples and try to gain an advantage or make a name for yourself. Don't call. Don't take the call of Christ and twist it into something that's about you and not about Jesus. Because even if you do, Christ will not be caught by surprise. He will accomplish His purpose in spite of your failure. Perhaps even through your failure. For it's on the night when Jesus is betrayed that He inaugurates the new covenant in His blood. For generations, people have tried to get into the church and use their proximity to Christ and His church for their own purposes. And guess what? The sovereign Christ is still winning. So don't go there. Judas is at the end of the list saying, Be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful. Don't be Judas. And I don't know where you are, church, this morning in terms of your relationship with Christ, but Christ is here. 
And he is still inviting and summoning people to be on his team. To be part of the church of Christ in the world. And if you don't know the, day, the joy of daily walking with Christ in pursuing his mission in the world, then let today be that day. And to anyone who might be here and be here for the wrong reasons, Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Turn from your sin before it's too late. Turn from your selfishness and be healed. And find the joy of belonging to Christ and existing not for your name, but for His. And finally, for those of you who are a part of North Roanoke Baptist Church and you just want to be on the team, let me remind you that we have apostolic DNA. That we have been made and sent to be with Jesus. And let's give all the credit to Jesus for calling us and making us His own. For Christ the King has made us to be with Him. He has made us to be sent into the world as His ambassadors. So may we this and every week be with Him and then live as those who have been sent out for the glory of Christ our King. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we bless Your name this morning. We thank You that You called the team and You made them. You made them into something new and You gave them a courage that defied everything that the world threw at them. And God, You gave them an authority that could defy even the forces of darkness. God, You've given us the Holy Spirit on the inside not only to declare the message but to authenticate it by the way that we live and You have given us the privilege to be with You every step of the way. So God, when we doubt, may we hear you say to Thomas, Behold my side. God, when we fear, may we remember the disciples on the boat when you awoke from your sleep and you said to the wind and the waves, Be still. God, may we remember this morning the King that we serve. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Whatever you need this morning, whether you need to trust Christ, repent of unfaithfulness to Christ, or join a church that is on mission with Christ, we invite you to come, whatever your need, as we stand and sing together.